There we go. Welcome, everybody. Uh, as I mentioned last week, we're not counting the weeks of the Khabar anymore, but we are celebrating the one-year anniversary since we began. Um, so June is going to be quite a packed schedule. We've added a few additional shirim to commemorate uh, our one-year anniversary. And Be'ezrat Hashem, we begin July, our new membership curriculum that I'm sure most of you have already signed up for. Um, we're very, very excited to kick that off with the first shiur of the new curriculum, kicking off July 5th with Rabbi Dweck live in London, but of course it will be streamed to all members and then available as a recording. You'll get all the information nearer the time. If you haven't joined yet, um, I, I don't know what you're thinking. Go on thechabura.com forward slash join. Any questions or queries, please do reach out. Um, we're very honored to have not only a very, very special guest, Rav Yoni Rosenzweig here tonight, but we've also got the Rosh Bed Midrash to do an intro for the Rav. So Rabbi Dweck, Bechavod. Thank you, Absinna. And uh, good evening, everyone. want to uh, welcome uh, Rabbi Rosenzweig. I, I'm going to speak to you his biography, but I have some words that I like to say, you know, as introduction to him. When I heard that he had agreed to, uh, to give a shiur to the Chambur, I was overjoyed, genuinely. I was really, really happy. I am happy and grateful that he's doing it um, because of the great kavod that I have for the Rav. Uh, the Rav is a rabbi of Netzach Menashe community in Bet Shemesh. He's a renowned teacher of halacha, gemara, and Jewish thought. And from 2006 to 2009, he served as the Rosh Kolel of the Mizrahi community in Melbourne, Australia. When he came back, he headed Yeshivat Miftar and became Rosh Yeshivah of Yeshivat Shvut Yisrael in Efrat. And he held that post until 2016. Currently, he teaches at Midrashat Lindenbaum. Rav Yoni has smicha from Rav Nachum Eliezer Rabinovich, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, and from the Chief Rabbinate of Israel, and degrees in education, philosophy, and history. He's the author of Yishrei Lev, a three-volume response on different halachic questions, and of Conversations in Essence, in which he engages in imaginary dialogue with great Jewish thinkers from the past. And finally, he'll soon publish a book on mental health and halacha, uh, which is the subject of tonight's shiur. Uh, so clearly the, the biography speaks uh, volumes about the Rav for, for itself, but it doesn't do the Rav justice. Uh, to me, the Rav is one of the most courageous hachamim that I know in contemporary times. The answers to the questions that he gives, the questions that he feels, that he addresses, to the openness that he has, to listen to the questions of people today is staggering. Whether it's through his Facebook page or his email or his writings, he is readily available. He makes himself available to the contemporary everyday questions that are unique to our time that have not been dealt with by almost anyone previous. Uh, and he has dedicated himself to being able to teach and to use of his great knowledge to to make sure that the average members of Klal Israel who seek his wisdom will be able to live lives of Torah and Mitzvot wholly and completely in our time. And just before we came on, before all of you were let into the room, he mentioned to Sina, please tell them my email address so that if anybody has any questions that they need to ask regarding halachot that are contemporary, especially with regards to the subject of tonight's shiur, uh, tell them Rav Sina, my email address. So Rav Sina will make sure to tell them 
Uh, I would be very reticent <laughs> to do that. But again, that shows the courage of the Rav and his absolute dedication to, to uh, making sure in the best way that he can that Kalal Yisrael can live by a Torah that is alive and a framework for action and living. Uh, tonight's subject is mental health and halacha. And uh, as I'm sure you will see by the subjects or the issues that he, he touches on tonight, that there is a vast amount of, of issues, situations, questions revolving what it is that we know now and how it is that we relate today uh, about mental health that um, he, is, he is immersed in and addressing regularly with tremendous expertise. He of course doesn't need me to say that, but, um, but as a, a, a respected uh, admirer and, uh, and follower of his, I can, say, I can say that that is certainly how I find it. And so without further ado, I want to turn it over to the Rav to be able to present uh, his shiur tonight. I ask Mechila uh, from the Rav, I will not be able to stay for the whole thing, but I certainly will listen to it on the recording afterwards. And with that, for the Rav, the Chavot. Thank you, thank you so much. Uh, I deserve those accolades, but I really do appreciate them. And uh, as they say, you know, I, I, I'm very happy to be here and thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's really, um, I, I see it. I mean, it's a pleasure for me, first of all. I, I like Rabbi Dweck and I, and I like Sina. Um, so I, I, you know, like personally, just I'm happy to be here. But besides the, the personal, I also see it as a, a form of shlichut, uh, you know, that uh, to be able to raise awareness to the issues of mental health. Um, for me, it's, it's very important to uh, reach across, you know, uh, space to communities far and wide and be able to share this information. Um, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, okay, that's not the goal of this, but uh, the reason it's so important for me to do is because I really feel like very few people are doing it. I mean, in other words, there are many, many great rabbis, Baruch Hashem, many of the uh, important scholarly and saintly individuals, but uh, many of them, uh, not, not through any malice, <laughs> simply because they're not familiar with the topic, uh, do not answer questions of mental health, uh, or simply don't know how to answer questions of mental health. Once again, by no fault of their own. Uh, you know, I, we're not taught in yeshiva how to do so. The topic is not discussed, and there are very, there's very few material uh, uh, that's out on it. And indeed, four years ago, when I uh, uh, began to get a few more questions from my own community, I realized this fact, uh, which is what led me to start learning with uh, a friend of mine, a psychiatrist, Dr. Shmuel Harris, uh, about this thing that I, uh, you know, Rabbi Dweck uh, book, um, everything that I wrote in the book was obviously peer reviewed, first of all, written together with a professional, uh, but also peer reviewed by other professionals as well, peer reviewed by, as I took it, made the rounds to many, many great uh, post-game deciders, uh, you know, to make sure. But all that was done, why? Uh, I did all that because that I realized that it hasn't been done yet and that it needs to be done. And what I wanna to talk to you about is uh, why it needs to be done and the difficulties of doing it and what that teaches us about mental health and a little bit about also what it teaches us in terms of what we can do for mental health uh, in our own communities. So that's the, the framework of it. The discussion will be to some extent, you know, uh, around, surrounding uh, halacha because that is my, uh, you know, uh, 
so seek my expertise. So the thing that I, I set out to do was to deal with halakhic questions um, pertaining to mental health. Uh, but as, you, as you'll see, it's not a technical endeavor. Uh, this is not something that is merely just answering a few questions that people have. Uh, I, I realized uh, a long time that this is much bigger than that. Much, much bigger. And so we'll see all of that. That was all by way of introduction. And now I'll get straight to the point. Um, when I first talked to Sim about, um, about uh, doing this, he asked what I should call it. And, and, I, and I said, we should, uh, you know, like, you know, the difficulties of writing a book on mental health. Why, why are there such difficulties about writing a book on mental health? So let me explain. Uh, I always, you know, when I started asking questions, right, I said I got it peer-reviewed, right? So when I started uh, going up to professionals, um, dietitians, um, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, and I asked them a question, a question referring to mental health, right? I always, always, always got the same answer. And the answer that I got was, Every case is different. So I joke a lot of times that, you know, suppose I should have, uh, why did I even write a book? <laughs> just printed out one page, written every case is different, and, you know, like uh, photocopied it and sent it out. And if there are professionals here on the call, I don't know if there are on this Zoom session, but if there are professionals here, they'll tell you the same thing, right? If you ask someone, uh, you know, well, there's a guy who's suffering from depression, and he wants to listen to music on Shabbat, you know, should I allow uh, that as a, you know, as a rabbi, you know, would you allow that person, right? If I said of a professional, like, what do you think? You think I should let him? The professional would tell me, you have not given me enough information for me to be able to tell you. You think that telling me that something from depression is enough? Then you don't understand mental health. Because depression comes in many forms. Because I need to know the history. Because I need to know comorbidity. Because I need to know manifests uh, itself. I need to know if there's any suicidal ideation. I need to know if there are suicidal attempts that have been in the past, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are many issues that uh, to be figured out uh, and understood uh, prior to uh, an evaluation of the situation. And just as that's true for, for the professional, it's true for the rabbi. So therefore, here's the dilemma. Right, that I understood right from the beginning. On the one hand, I uh, wanted to write a book about Jewish law. Jewish law uh, loves definitions. It, it needs definitions. Um, in order to tackle any issue, you really need to define what you're talking about first and define in what cases you would allow, what cases you wouldn't allow, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? That sort of thing. Okay. Someone is a choleshe yesh bo sakana, someone who's in danger. Choleshe ein bo sakana, someone who's sick but not in danger. Someone who's not sick at all, you know, and is just unwell a little bit, feeling a bit, you know. If we take an example from physical health, right? If a woman is giving birth, is in labor, we look at that as a dangerous situation where her life is in danger. So obviously we would violate Shabbat completely and absolutely in order to get her to a hospital and whatever else she needs. If a person is sick in bed with a low fever, right, then he would probably be a someone who is sick but not in danger. And if a person wakes up in the morning, a bit of a background headache, right, he's not well. So he's not sick, he's a bit unwell, right? Who of us hasn't sometimes been unwell, let's say, on a fast day? Did you break the fast because of that? 
I'm assuming you didn't. You know, oh, you're feeling well, just go to bed, lie down, you know, etc. You didn't drink, you didn't eat, you didn't break the fast. You kept going, you know, until the end. And okay, you know, so you felt a bit under the weather. You weren't sick. You weren't, certainly weren't dying, you know. So obviously these different things, right? With filth, many times we know how to define. Okay, what about the guy who's suffering from depression or OCD or PTSD or DID? I don't know if you know all these things, but I'll, I'll open some of the acronyms later. Yeah, but, but you know, what, what about someone who suffers from these things? How do we define them? Most rabbis would be stymied by the questions. They, they wouldn't know what to do with themselves and not their fault. Once again, they were never taught and we just don't know. And like I said, even within the mental health world, right? Just using the buzzwords is not enough. You know, full history, full understanding, you know, to be able to rule on a certain issue. That was the problem with writing the book. In order to write the book, I needed to create a new language. The language that I created was one that didn't discuss rules, like, you know, as principles, so much as it described cases. So I described cases and ruled on them according to the best medical knowledge that was at my disposal. Um, and at the footnotes, I explained the ruling and how I got to it. And that was meant to give you kind of like an idea of how I looked at it, you know, and how I saw it and what I utilized in order to get to the conclusion and, and possibly to help <clears throat> to copy to another case in the future or to adapt to another case in the future uh, using those principles. But the best way to do that is by looking at cases, by seeing cases. That's the best way. And you know what? That's part of the problem. In other words, part of the problem that we have as a society is that we're not exposed enough to these cases. Many times people who are suffering from poor mental health are hospitalized, penalized, meaning they're taken away from the public and they're put away in some place. Justifiably, non-justifiably, it doesn't really matter. We don't usually see the people who are, and excuse the colloquial term, crazy, yeah, around us. We don't see them. They're taken away, they're put aside. And if they do live among us, they don't tell us. That's what's called the stigma. People are afraid. If someone has cancer, but they tell everybody, they tell people, they tell people all the time. No, they're willing to, to share it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and people come and they offer support and they offer, you know, and, and when someone is suffering from anxiety, do they share it? Many times they don't. Many times they are afraid of how society will react or not react. They're afraid of what people think about them. And so they keep it a secret. And mostly, a lot of times, they're ashamed of themselves for no reason. It's not their fault. The people feel ashamed. They feel like this is my fault. Somehow, I could not get a group on myself. I mean, it's all up here. I should be able to do something about this. I can't do anything if the evil cancer took a hold of my body, but I could have done something to stop myself from, uh, from deteriorating into a state of depression. That's what people, it's not true. A lot of times it's not true. It's not your fault. And you couldn't have done anything. And that person needs real help. But society doesn't always believe people. 
that they need help. That's the problem. And once again, I'm here on this call, usually anyone who's listening to me will say to themselves, but I believe it. And I, I'm sure you do. I'm sure that in you know, absolutely you do. But as a society, we don't. As someone once put it, let's say someone gets up in the morning and he says, I have a fever. He calls into work and he says, I have a fever. I guess I'll tell him not to come in. What if up in the morning he says, I'm feeling depressed. Will the employer tell him not to come in also? Same thing. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure the employer even understands what I'm feeling depressed means. We understand fever. We don't understand depressed. We don't really get it. We've all heard the buzzwords. We've all heard the terms. Really get it. And that's where the stigma comes from. And that's why people feel like they're not really being listened to, not really being heard. That's where the problem starts. My work on halacha and mental health, amongst other things, is meant to help break the stigma. So once again, I said at the beginning, it's not just uh, about a specific answer to a specific question. No, it helps break the stigma. How? How does it help break the stigma? Let me give an example, okay? And in a moment, I'll give a few more examples. Example number one, I mentioned before, uh, music for someone who's feeling depressed, right? So what is this person asking me to do? To violate Shabbat in order to help with his depression. Now, if someone with a fever, once again, who couldn't get out of bed, comes to me and says to me, you know, can I take a pill or can I do this or can I do that in order to help, to help me get better, right? I would say yes. When I say yes, that he can violate, what that means to him is, wow, you really believe me. You believe me so much that you're willing to violate Shabbat on a mission, let's say, yeah, in order to help me, in order for me to be able to do what I need to do to get better. You really think I'm sick, don't you? You've accepted my view of reality as I have presented it to you. Okay, that. Thank you. That's what that person will feel. But if someone says, you know, I need music, and we say, well, come on, you really need it? I mean, you can't last 25 hours without music. What's going to happen to you? What's going to happen? Kill yourself, no, right? You're not going to kill yourself. Okay. So, what's going to happen to you? Well, you'll feel a little bit bad. I mean, I don't want you to feel bad. It's important, you know? So, with all due respect, you know, I'm not sure we can allow you to violate Shabbat in that way just to feel a little bit inside. That's the problem that people think that that's what's happening here. This is about feeling a little bit better inside. And therefore, how can we allow this? You know, it's a uh, it's impossible to allow, or how could we know for sure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What message does that person get at that moment? The message that they get is, the rabbi didn't believe me, or doesn't think it's so bad, or doesn't understand how much I'm suffering. That's the message that person, it enhances the stigma. I want you to know that halacha has the, it's a double-edged sword. It has the ability to be an, an immense help to people who are suffering from mental health concerns. Time has the ability to be an absolute hindrance because it could, it could reinforce the stigma, it could enhance the stigma if used wrongly and create you know, a lot of bitterness towards Judaism and halakha. 
Or the other option is that it's a great uh, help to a person because Judaism is a very, um, when used properly, it's an amazing system, an anchor, really. Um, an anchor and, uh, and um, um, like a very, I'm sorry for all this noise. Um, a very, a very stable, um, very, it's a very stable ground um, for, uh, for um, people who are searching for something. Um, and therefore it could be a, and like, a, you know, like a, an island of stability um, if we use it properly. And if not, uh, then unfortunately, as I said, it harms individuals. So we need to make sure that we're using it right. Okay, that's the point. Now, why is it that people have, a, have trouble? I've spoken to many posters. Why is it that people have trouble to give it here and to give leniencies? The answer that they give usually is, we don't know. We just don't know whether the person is just a little bit blue, a little bit down, it's really serious, yeah? How do we know which one it is? How do we know that the person is really unwell? So they claim ignorance. And I've heard this so many times. Just, just lately, okay, I was talking to a young woman. Her parents had abused her when she was a child. She's not in touch with her parents. Her friends can't put up with her. They kicked her out. She's been diagnosed with anxiety and depression and eating disorder and PTSD. She lives alone. She receives some social security. She works a little bit. She is very difficult. After speaking with her for hours, I can tell you that, you know, she doesn't understand social cues a lot of times. She doesn't understand social boundaries, right? I offered her to call me whenever she needs. She's used that offer. <laughs> you know, she calls me all the time. And she, uh, she spends, you know, like if she could, she spend hours on the phone with me. I have to tell her that I have to get off, right? I, I let her speak up to an hour, you know, but not more than that. I, I met her like a week and a half ago. I've spent like five, six hours with her on the phone. Um, you know, and it's been very time consuming. But I'm looking at this girl, right? She, she like I said, she has, an, she has anorexia. She has PTSD. She has anxiety and depression. She doesn't have any friends or family. She lives alone. And honestly, between you and me, I don't know if I'm gonna hear from her for much longer. I told her she has to, you know, like it's terrible that she lives alone. I mean, a person like that, right? Who's always feeling dejected and alone and pushed aside, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Honestly, I, I, I fear for her life every day, you know? So I, I don't know, uh, you know, what I can do for her, but I do know that when she told me that she asked a rabbi, a different rabbi before she met me a week and a half ago, she is another rabbi that she's been in touch for years, uh, you know, whether she can be on her phone on Shabbat to help her get through Shabbat because, you know, she tries to keep Shabbat, but then she's alone all Shabbat and it, it just like tears her apart and, and causes cause a deterioration, etc. That he basically told me afterwards on the phone, the rabbi, that he doesn't, he doesn't know, he doesn't know how to how to define her. That's the problem, is that, you know, people say, oh, we don't know how to define halakhically. We don't know. We raise our hands, you know, and we, we simply 
We can't take responsibility. Why can't we take responsibility? We need to take responsibility. I told that girl under no, in no uncertain terms that she must use her phone on Shabbat. She can use her phone on Shabbat if she needs to, to watch something, to listen to music, whatever it is, to keep herself busy, you know, because her thoughts can be very damaging to her. And here's what people don't understand. I'm just explaining a little bit about mental health for a little that I understand. And uh, once again, this is just some things that I have learned from people who are, you know, see, the rabbi doesn't get it. <laughs> and the simple person also doesn't always get it, right? We don't always understand. I understand the problem. We don't always understand. When, when, the, when, 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 when uh, we have, uh, I don't know, someone has cancer and they have to take chemotherapy, right? It's like we get it, right? We, we're not geniuses in like biology and, and, and medicine, but we get it. It's like, there's like the cells and we need to kill the bad cells. So therefore we use the chemotherapy to kill. Oh, I get it, yeah? So like, that's what a person figures, right? That's, that's what's going on and that's how it is. So we understand why the antidote fits the disease. But when someone says I'm depressed and he says I need to listen to music, a regular person will say, I don't get it. I don't understand. What are you talking about? What, what's the connection between A and B? You're depressed, so listening to music is gonna solve your problem. How exactly? I, I'm confused as a rabbi on why you want me to allow this, right? Someone with borderline personality disorder wants to journal on Shabbat, to write down things, to journal on Shabbat. That will help them deal with their BPD. Why? <laughs> Once again, what's the, even the connection between these two things? What's the in writing things in a diary and your borderline personality disorder? Are you trying to tell me that writing is going to heal that? I don't get it. I had a guy with trichotillomania. Trichotillomania, for those of you who do not know, a fancy way of saying hair pulling disorder. People who pull hairs all the time. Now, I'm going to tell you the question, okay? And I'm telling you, you won't even be able to understand why he asked me the question until I explain it. This individual with trichotillomania asked me, whether it's okay that he chews gum on the fast days. Now, right, you don't understand the connection? 100%. That's how it is. Is that the connections are, to some extent, very, very um, out of the blue. They're, they're, they're not evident in and of themselves. What could someone with trichotillomania want to ask me? He wants to know whether he can chew gum on a fast day. That out. What does that do for the person? Let me answer every one of these questions for you, okay? So that you'll understand a little bit more. So a person who is suffering from depression, see the problem with depression is that the person is living here in his head. If you've ever suffered from depression, and I have not, but if you've ever suffered from depression, then you must know what I mean. See, the problem with depression is that people don't feel sad. Many times they don't feel at all. They have become so dejected and so depressed about life that nothing has any meaning anymore. It's not like things have meaning and the meaning is sad, that there is no meaning. There's only apathy. There's nothing. That's the problem. So they live here. And because they're in their heads all the time, they think really bad things. They say to themselves, what's the point of living anymore? What's the point of just sitting around here all day long you know, no one even comes to visit me. Why should I even continue living? 
one comes to visit me, I may, I'm, I'm of no value. In fact, I'm a burden. I'm really a burden. I just, I don't even go to work. Whenever people come, they're like they're pitying me. I mean, like, they'd be better off without me. They really would be better off without me. Now that I think about it. Actually, I'd be, I'd be doing them a favor. I mean, they're really the only thing that I can do of value at this point is to take my own life. Let's be honest. You know, it's, it's really no point. What am I doing? It's been months since I've gone out. You know, I, I don't do anything. It's just, it's pointless. This is pointless. I, I really don't see the point. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna end it. Right? What happens? That person has convinced themselves that that's the right way to go. And you know what can help them? Listening to music. Why? Will listening to music make their problems go away? No. But it will make them not think about their problems. It'll help them not live in their head. It'll help them stop chugging and chugging and grinding through the same issues again and again and again. Then leave that place. And it'll take them hopefully one step away from doing something terrible many times. We don't take into account that the, that the depression is a deterioration of over time. People don't become suicidal in one shot. They, they, they deteriorate. We need to take that into account. That's part of it. So we need to get people out of here, out of here, out of the place where they, they torture themselves, out of the place where they suffer so much, place which causes them so much strife. That's what we need to pull them out of. Journaling is the same thing for someone with borderline personality disorder. Same idea. They need to be doing something else. And sometimes journaling is what helps. Now, whether that's okay or not okay to do, it's a total prohibition, et cetera, et cetera, it's a long story. Not simple at all. But my point is that we need to have a better understanding of the human mind and the human psyche as rabbis, at least, also as people. Uh, in order to be able to evaluate and understand the situation that is being presented to us. Or else, of course, you, you will say, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. You need to learn and to be sure because this is people's lives we're talking about. And the person with trichotillomania, <clears throat> he had a problem. Hair pulling disorder, it's like a tick. You know, he was pulling, pulling, he had a beard. He would pull and pull and pull. You might say, what's the big deal with hair pulling disorder? Pulls out his hair, you know, like, what's a big deal? Big deal, big deal. I had a girl, uh, side story, I had a girl who sent me an email with pictures, pictures of her head. She had bald spots all over. And she, she, she sent it to me because she wanted to tell me that she can't go out with friends to work. She got a hat, ruined her life. Her hair pulling disorder literally ruined her life. So when you think, oh, like, what's the big deal? Big deal. And this fellow, he would pull out his beard. His beard was absolutely ridiculous uh, if he continued to do it. And once again, he would be very embarrassed. Embarrassed in public, in front of people, he couldn't go out of the house either. What did he find out? He found out that, um, he found out that chewing gum helped him to avoid that. He found out that when he was doing something else, like chewing gum, that it helped him to control his urge to pull out his, out his beard, to pull out the hairs. But he found that on a fast, he had a real issue with it. So he wanted to know whether he could chew gum on the fast day to help him with, with uh, dealing with the disorder. 
There is no way that I would have made that connection without but every person's different and every case is different. And we need to be, you know, sensitive to that. And people are suffering, suffering a lot in ways that we could not imagine even. There was a young woman uh, who contacted me with DID, dissociative identity disorder. We know it as uh, multiple personalities. That's how people usually call it, you know, and in movies, that's how it's uh, presented. But it's a dissociation. It's a situation where people dissociate, they, they leave their self and they become another self uh, in a sense. Uh, and they don't remember what the other self does. And this young woman uh, sent me a message crying, really crying. Um, it was really heartbreaking. She, she uh, would go to sleep, or rather she would black out and she would wake up the next morning and she would not know what had happened. But her phone, had clear evidence of what she had done the previous day. And it wasn't kosher, so to speak. Uh, it wasn't within the framework of an orthodox life. Um, and she was so embarrassed by it. But not just embarrassed, she was she was heartbroken, you know. She wanted to know how she could do tshuva, how she could repent for the sins that she had committed. Um, we need to understand these conditions in order to be able to answer questions like that, to have the right empathy and sympathy, you know, for the people who go through these things. Uh, for that, we need a little bit of, like I said, training and, and a lot of heart, you know? Uh, it's so hard sometimes. And this is another thing. The reason that people with mental conditions hide their conditions is because, and I, I don't know how to put this, I'll put it bluntly, they're difficult to deal with, right? I, I, once again, I'm comparing it to cancer, okay? Just uh, for the sake of comparison, just, just so you all understand. If someone is lying in a hospital, God forbid, okay? And they're dying from cancer, which is terrible. I'm not belittling it, okay? But many times you can come to the person, you can sit by their bedside, and you can have a proper conversation. And you can say something and they can say something. They can understand you, you can understand them. And you can uh, see how much you mean to them, how much they mean to you, and they can say how much you mean to them. You can have a nice goodbye and right meaningful moments. When a person is suffering from dementia and they're shouting at you the same word every single day, all the time, and they can't get out what they want to say, and they're getting on your nerves like you won't believe, it's not as comfortable to sit next to that person. It's just not the same. It's, it's difficult and people find it hard to have empathy and sympathy in those situations. Those people are annoying. They're, 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 they're a lot to handle. That young woman that I mentioned before, who, like I said, called me, all calls me all the time now. Yeah, very, very time consuming. Absolutely. And it's a struggle on a, on a Midos level, right? On a character level. To be like Hillel Azakan, you remember that story with Hillel Azakan? That, uh, you know, the guy comes to him, Erev Shabbos, you know, to test his patience again and again. He comes at the most inconvenient time, right? This young woman, I can already tell, because she's done it twice already. She's going to call me every Erev Shabbos at the most inconvenient time. Yeah, and why? Because she freaks out before Shabbat, because she'll be alone on Shabbat, because she can't talk to anybody, she can't call anybody. 
That's when she freaks out the most. Erev Shabbos. And what's she going to eat? How is she going to make food for herself? She can't use the microwave. She can't use the oven, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what does she do? So 5.30, Erev Shabbos, she calls me up. I'm in the middle of showering, getting ready for Shabbos, putting the dishes away, setting up the table. That's when she calls me. Now she wants to talk for an hour. Okay. That's what I did. We spoke for an hour each time. But, you know, like Mashallah says, right? You can get angry at her. You can get mad. You can get annoyed. She has no respect for boundaries, no understanding, you know, et cetera. Or maybe she does, but she just can't help it, whatever it is. You have to find a lot of heart to help people like that. You know, a lot of, a lot of patience. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable to talk to those people. It's not going to be simple. But that's what we can do. And now I'm not talking just about me. I'm talking about you as well as a community. People don't entrust us with their secrets about this issue because they're afraid of how we'll react. And you know what? I think they're right a little bit. I think a lot of us don't have the patience. I think a lot of us would be like, I don't have the hours and hours and hours to spend with you now, even though you're a friend. I have other things to do. I have a degree that I'm learning for. I have a job to go to. I have a family. 100%. I'm not saying we have to sacrifice our entire lives for these individuals. But if we could show an ounce more of compassion than we do, I think it would go a long way. I think that if we, if people understand that we're welcoming, people see around them, that people welcome conversations with them, even though it's hard, even though it's difficult. Yes, then that's something that we can do. And I think that my work on Halakha Mental Health does that very same thing. I'm circling back to the beginning, full circle. Meaning I think it does the very same thing. It engages those people and it tells them, I have you. There is an answer for you within Judaism. There is an answer for you within Orthodoxy. There is an address that you can come to. It's not you're alone. No, we care about you. And we want to see what we can do. We want to see how we can help. Um, Sina, I can continue talking or I can open up for questions or what do you think is best? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you to do either because that's very, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know where to start. I've, I've had a, a few conversations during COVID period actually with friends who have uh, struggled. Um, uh, I myself get very anxious when the kids are ill. But it's one thing I've noticed from a couple of friends of mine who don't actually live in the UK, they're not necessarily practicing, but they feel like um, one of them is actually about the shiva. Uh, and the mental health issues that he's going through has led to him having to not practice, for example, on Shabbat, as he would like to practice. And because there haven't been rabbis out there to explain that it's okay when you're suicidal to um, have these challenges it's not the ideal fine but there are these challenges and you you are still a practicing orthodox jew he feels like he's going off the derech so what you're saying fits in exactly with how, how i've experienced it with uh, these two specific individuals one of them uh, who's actually wants to be part of the berit but feels like if I'm having these problems and I can't overcome them, 
as a result of suicidal thoughts, um, I'm not a proper Jew. So I'm, I'm not part of orthodoxy. And that's why I think the voice that we're hearing is such an important voice. I guess that was more of a feedback than a question, but I, I would love to open up uh, to some of the uh, audience to see what they're saying. Uh, anybody got any questions, please feel free to unmute and, and dig right in. While you think of your questions, I've actually got a question, Ralph. Um, I know, I think it was Masahat Ketubot, it's related more to the questions related to mental health more generally. And I think it's Ralph, uh, Shimon, um, Shimon Ben Gamliel, who says that idleness re, uh, leads to, I think it was Shimon. How are we to understand Shimon? Um, is, 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 it's a mental state, is that right? Um, there's no talking about, the, about those terms, right? So we're talking about, yeah, like uh, Shi'amum, right? There's a Shi'amum in one place and a Shi'amun in one place. Uh, but yes, generally, uh, like mostly what people uh, uh, describe that as is either some form of um, well, it's either depression, the shaman is either depression, according to uh, those who, uh, or it's some sort of, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking out on the word, um, but it's some sort of uh, psychotic state, that's what I wanted to say. It's some sort of a psychotic state. It's one or the other. It's not so clear what that term is. In the book, uh, I have actually one of the uh, appendices is to go through all the terms that appear in the Gemara. That was my next question. Do you have a list of the terms that we have now associated with mental health issues? I, I do have mm. uh, like a, a list of the terms of the Gemara and what they might mean. Fantastic. Juan, I'm happy to send that to you, by the way. Uh, I, uh, I'm getting the book either way, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to wait till I get the book. Um, uh, any questions? Anybody else? Uh, yeah. Russell, go ahead. Please. So what extent is I guess, uh, learning a little bit more about mental health something which regular, I guess, community rabbis can do? And how much is it always going to be something which lies beyond, you know, lies beyond their ability to really get to the bottom of? Meaning if they have a halakhic question which comes up about someone who's suffering from serious depression, whether they could do something on Shabbat or, or whatever it is, they'll always have to consult a... I guess, an, an expert or someone who's really spent years of their life dedicated to it. So to what extent is it something which, which rabbis really spend, I don't know, months, whatever it is, finding yeah. out more about? And how much is it just being aware to know what to ask for the expert? Very good. First of all, um, I think it's a great question. Uh, first of all, I'll say, um, I think that uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, in the process beyond the book of creating hopefully like a center that is meant to deal with halacha and mental health or Judaism mental health and, and beyond. Um, you know, there's a lot of plans there. Uh, we need to raise some money, but uh, you know, we'll get there too. Uh, but part of the plans there is also to train rabbis. Uh, so train rabbis about mental health, train mental health professionals about halacha uh, to kind of like have the world's meet and to generate greater awareness of the issues and, uh, and, the, and the things. But I will say this, okay? Uh, to answer specifically your question, uh, two points. So point number one, I think rabbis in a relatively short amount of time, now that I've done it uh, over a relatively long amount of time, I think that I'm able to train rabbis over a relatively short amount of time 
uh, about how to generally understand the topic and be able, if not to paskin, to know how to get to a place where they paskin, you know, on the issue. And I'll explain what that means in a second. So that's number one. Number two, I think that a, that a great, uh, and once again, I, I want to say something before I say this uh, criticism. I want to say something. I love rabbis. Okay, they're my people. I think they're great people. And I think generally, I know some of them make mistakes and, you know, we know all the bad stories, you know, so of course there are bad, there are bad apples in the bunch without a doubt. Uh, but most rabbis that I know want to help. They just want to help. They're, they're civil servants in a sense. Uh, they put themselves out there and they're really, they're, they're, they're good people. But even though they're good people and many times they can make mistakes and, mis and be, be misguided. And this is one of those fields where I feel like rabbis, Simply paskin and rule on things they have no understanding of, and I am very disappointed when that happens. Uh, and I come across it once in a while, you know, of rabbis uh, who who just you know they give sakim to people, they give rulings instead of saying I don't know, instead of saying I'll look around, I'll search, I'll ask someone, you know, etc. You know, they give a wrong sack. Believe me, if the least that I could do is to, and I'll put this bluntly, is to shut some rabbis up. That would be a good thing, yeah? Is if the least that I could do is to get rabbis to understand that they don't have an earthly idea of what's going on, that's great. Even if I don't train even one rabbi, but I do train them to say, I don't know, that would be wonderful because that already would possibly make a lot of lives better. So I do think that we need to train rabbis. And I do think that if you ask me what I do, right? I definitely need to get a very good understanding of a person's history and what's going on with that person. If hearing them is not enough, I need to contact the mental health professional that they're dealing with, the psychiatrist or psychologist that they're seeing to hear from them and to hear what's going on. And at times that's definitely necessary, but you need to get a full picture. I can tell you that as a rabbi, right? People ask me questions about Chavez and Kashrut and this and Shromanagia uh, and this and that. I can answer those questions, minute, two minutes, three minutes, eh, easy. Any mental health question that I get takes me, I would say, minimum 20 minutes, sometimes more, half an hour, sometimes even more than half an hour, every single question, because for that, you just need so much information to get it right. And by now, I know the right questions to ask and how to do it, et cetera, et cetera. But, but that took a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of effort. And I really hope that we're able to train people, train rabbis to understand these things better. So I hope that answers your question. A little bit of Thank you very much. Um, thank you so much for your talk. It was very um, insightful and informative. Um, I really appreciated it. I wanted to ask you a question about, and you don't have to answer this a little bit too in depth, but sort of about the methodology which you approach these questions because you, you drew the connection between mental health and physical health. Certainly there's a lot of connection there. So a lot of interplay, but they are different in one fundamental important factor in, in my opinion. Um, and that affects the way in which it's possible to discuss these things within a halakhic framework. If you go to the doctor and you are in pain, that doctor can run tests and achieve some sort of objective understanding of what's going on in your body. So the pain you feel is, is, is psychosymptomatic, but, it's, but the underlying cause of the pain is, so as a Rav, you can look at that and say, oh, the person is in X amount of pain, but we know what their issue is, so we can we can discuss that and understand if that qualifies for certain leniencies or the halakha would allow them to do certain things in certain cases. 
mental health is fundamentally um, relative. It's not only impossible, it's fundamentally subjective and relative. So even like the DSM-5 is descriptive of the um, field's understanding of a subject. It's not a prescriptive diagnostic tool. And even the own person, if a person says I'm depressed or I'm very, I'm the most depressed I've ever been, I feel nothing, it feels, we only know that relative to their earlier experiences. So we don't know if that person's actually, there's no way to know that person's actually dangerous themselves if they haven't been a danger before, or if they're just going through a rough patch. So how do you deal with that kind of inherent relative relativity and inherent subjectivity in, in this issue? Absolutely. Once again, a very important question and absolutely correct in, in so many ways. So let me like some of the things you said. 100% the field is, and, and the therapists themselves of course know it, the field is very subjective. Two therapists will many times not agree uh, about uh, about about any one given diagnosis, um, and many times, as you say, you don't even follow the DSM per se. Like if you ask someone who's been in the field for a long time, how do you diagnose depression? They usually don't tick five out of nine. You know, like the DSM tells you to do. They just they see the person, they talk to them, they know depression. I know depression. I see it. Yeah, I don't need to tick the boxes to know it. Yeah, and, and same thing for OCD and for all these things. People just know it from their experience. Um, and that's how they kind of like decide what it is. Although once again, two therapists and their experiences may be different. And of course, that's also uh, very much reflected in the fact that the difference between DSM-1 and DSM-5 is so significant and the change that that has gone through in so few years relatively, um, you know, in terms of the field. I mean, wow, to have like so many differences. Even, um, in, is... even school now would be taught that mm -hmm. DSM-5 is not a necessarily one-for-one -one tool uh, in the field. Sure, sure, 100%, 100%. And, and that's even without going into the fact that we all know, I mean, anyone who's in the business knows that uh, the DSM is also <laughs> a reflection of a bit of politics, a bit of that, a bit of that, you know, so, you know, let's not even go into, into that and the, the insurance companies and all those stuff. Um, but let me, give, let me give an example of that, you know, if you will, um, of, what, what, of what you're saying. Um, let's say, um, the most, probably the most contentious thing that I wrote in the book, okay, has to do with the trans community. I only have one uh, question that was asked that had to do with the trans community, and that was whether you could, you know, wear clothing of the other sex, whether you could uh, do the surgery, take the hormones, you know, et cetera, to look, uh, you know, like another gender, et cetera. So I'm not going to have to go into the actual uh, answer because there were rabbis who said one thing and rabbis who said another. But in a, in a long footnote that I write there, I, I, I write what, basically what you just said. In other words, I write that there's a discussion amongst the professionals whether it will even help. In other words, before I come as a rabbi to be matir or, or, or aser, right, to allow or to disallow, right, the question of whether transitioning will help the person get over their problems or not help the person get over their problems, make it worse or make it better, is in and of itself a very contentious issue. And therefore, I, as a rabbi, right, when I look for the medical knowledge on the issue, will come under like a barrage of opinions. And people will say, why are you telling him to do the surgery? I say, well, I want to help him. He's suicidal. You think that will stop him being suicidal? If he transitions, he'll be more suicidal. How do you know? Oh, it's just in this study. And so they say, no, that study's garbage. That study proved that it's all great. Yeah. And then, oh, no, that study is ridiculous, et cetera, et cetera. You know this. I mean, people, I assume people know. A little bit about what I'm talking about. Anyway, that shows 
the problem, okay, which uh, Gidon, I can see her name is Gidon, uh, which Gidon, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, put forward. What's the solution? The solution in terms of my own methodology is that, uh, first of all, sometimes there are open questions, but in, in most questions, okay, the solution is because I, I, I labored on this, I had this question for many, many uh, uh, months, and I thought about it a lot. And I tried to figure out how I'm going to tackle uh, the, the elusive nature of this topic. And the answer was that halacha has categories for that too. So halacha has categories for pikuach nefesh and cholesh yeshbon, cholesh and sakana. Sure, it also has a category called suffix pikuach nefesh. It also has a category called suffix cholesh and sakana. So in other words, the halacha does also uh, talk about cases which are iffy. And tells you how to treat them. So, for example, I do have a lot of iffy question, questions or uh, cases, and what I and I developed, once again through talking with mental health professionals, a list of criteria to which I could define something as enough of a doubt that the person might be in significant physical uh, danger, right? So, for example, I use percentages, meaning what kind, what percentage is it that in that having that specific disorder. That a person will take their own lives, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what kind of suicidal ideation we're talking about? Uh, these sorts of things. So I tried to create uh, a list of basic ideas of how how we can judge a case as a suffix enough that we'll say, look, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't need to know. It's enough that I have a doubt, and I'm going to say violate Shabbat. It's enough that I have a doubt. Doubt that I'm going to say, even if it's a Torah prohibition, don't worry about it. You know, so I tried to develop those rules as well because of the elusive nature that you're talking about. Can I ask a follow-up, Sina, or is it? I'm sorry? I'm asking if I can ask the follow-up. Oh, go ahead. Sure. Uh, I, don't know, I, don't know what, I don't know how much time we have, but yeah. That's what I was asking Sina. I was asking Sina. Uh, Rob, we have you until another four minutes, I think. We don't want to take more of your time because I believe it's 11.30 p.m. there. Right, right. So, right. Okay. Ask, ask up and then we'll ask a few more. We'll see who else is around for a few more questions. Awesome. Okay. Um, so I was just wondering if if you give, um, if you rank in order of priority the um, practices that are used. So do you do you rank what the field considers to be evidence based practices higher than those that are emerging practices, higher than those that are let's say more speculative practices, or do you treat all because nothing is truly evidence based in the same way you would see with the physical sciences. Does that halakhically mean that even something that's called an evidence-based practice would be considered the same as a speculative or emerging practice? That was that uh, the reason that we're so behind, not just as a not just in Judaism, but as a society, uh, in this whole issue is because the real breakthrough came in DSM three. Because what you're talking about, right, the evidence-based, that sort of thing, right? Meaning uh, psychology wanted to be recognized for years and years and years as a legitimate branch. You know, and with DSMs one and two, it was impossible because everything there was psychodynamic and Freudian and this and that, you know, and therefore DSM three basically broke the mold and came and said, you know what, we're going to treat this, you know, like a, like a, it's like a checklist. We're going to treat this just like uh, physical health in a sense. We're going to give you like clear guidelines, clear uh, uh, things that will say, oh, one, two, three, four, that's this. Yeah, one, two, three, four. We're not going to say why it happened because of the father running out and the mother and the this, forget all that stuff. Yeah, we're just going to talk about symptoms. And the second we talked about symptoms, suddenly it became like, oh, you know what? We actually have something we can work with over here. Yeah, so it's all good. 
So on some level, Halacha also responded that way, meaning Halacha also was gratified uh, to have this new system. It's not perfect, obviously, because as you understand well, and you said you said it basically yourself, right? Uh, a checklist does not really really encapsulate what the person is going through. Yeah, it's not actually correct. That's that's him. Yeah, is like some lines in a book, you know, because it's not him. But it has helped halacha, in a sense, as a as as a um, a discipline that enjoys looking at lists um, and clear guidelines and clear definitions to form an opinion uh, on these issues and to understand what they are. So uh, the answer to your question, in short, is yes, we would look differently at things that are evidence based and things that are more technical in nature than about speculative notions that uh, are hard to be proven. Uh, one way or another. It's difficult for me to take, uh, you know, Freudian or neo-Freudian, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, understand uh, ideas and translate them into some, like, you know, practical halachic guideline. It, it's very difficult to do that. Thank you, Rav. One final question before the Rav goes. Anybody? Uh, Rav, um, yeah. thank you so much for for everything. Um, so is the, is the main mechanic for Hilu that you're using for permitting things uh, tethered to the possible devolving of the patient to, um, to, to for, for suicidal ideation? Or is there other categories in halakha that you're, you're using to permit things? Um, no, it's not just suicidal ideation. No, no, that's just an example of pikuach nefesh, of cholesh yeshbo sakanar pikuach nefesh. But uh, with other things, it's about functional consequences. Okay, I, I once again, the chapter maybe is chapter two in my book is the chapter that I spent the most time on uh, because it took it took the longest to figure out these definitions that you're all asking about, which are great questions, by the way. It just took me so long. I'm kind of like giving it to you like in two minutes, but I don't want you to like in the book. It's like there's like pages and pages of footnotes uh, where I explain how I got to these things. So I don't want you to think it's like I'm pulling it out of a hat, um, but it's definitely. Uh, something that took a long time to put together and to understand how you how you make this up, how you how you how you form it. It's it's uh, the the other uh, part of this is functional consequences. So functional consequences means right. What does it matter? And putting this in short, uh, what does it matter if I can't get out of bed because I have forty degrees uh, fever, or because I'm depressed? What what does it matter? I can't get out of bed. Does it does it really matter what the reason is? Now, some people will say, what do you mean? Look, it's just depression, just get out of bed. But he can't, that's the point. He can't. He can't just like the person with, with, a, with a fever can't. That's really how it is, like really. Like you have to believe this person. You know, we have to believe him. I know that with the other guy, you don't have to believe him. You just put your hand on his forehead and you know that he's, that he's sick. I get it. So you can't see the depression, I understand. But we need to get used to believing people that they really are sick, that they really are unwell, and that they are deserving of our sympathy and empathy, that they are really deserving of it. And, and it's not just a trick and nothing else. No, no, we have to start believing people. And I know some people will take advantage of that and blah, blah, blah. So what? So some people will take advantage of it as if people don't take advantage of the physical healthcare system. They also do sometimes. So what? We have to help people. We have to help people who are suffering mentally as well. And the first step to that is the person has functional consequences. He hasn't gone to work for a week because of that. He hasn't gone out to shop 
for a few days because of that. Person has agoraphobia. Okay, he's afraid to go outside. Doesn't want to be seen with people. Afraid he'll get stuck. You know, he won't be able to get away if a fire starts. Things like that. You know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have to believe that that's true. You can see the functional consequences. The person has trichotillomania. Their life is ruined. Ruined. Is a person like that not sick? At least of the chomusha ain't b'sakana. They have trichotillomania. I understand. Hair pulling doesn't seem like it's life-threatening or a sickness. It has functional consequences, significant functional consequences for that person. Really, he's not sick. I think he's sick. I'll tell you one last thing, okay? If Sin allows me to say one last thing. Um, you can be here all night, Rob. It's, your, it's the timing for you that I'm worried about. One last thing, I don't want to keep full. Uh, one last thing. My Rebbe, Rabbi Nachum Eliezer Rabinovich, Hoshiva Maladumim, passed away a bit more than a year ago. I, I, I miss him every day, more than words can tell you. Um, and um, he, was, he was such a great man. Um, such a great man. And I used to ask him Shiloh's all the time. And many times he would say, not just to me, but to others as well, he would say, what do you think? He wouldn't just answer, he would say, what do you think? He would say what well, we thought, etc. But he always we thought. And many times I would say to him, here's my svara. Here's what I think. What do you, do you think that's a good svara? Do you think that's appropriate? And he would say to us, yes, that's very good. Right? And the mistake would be <laughs> to think that he agreed. that did not mean he agreed with you. It meant that he was supportive of you, right? He wanted to support, so he would say, "Oh, very nice, very nice." But if I asked him, "Do you think that that svara is correct?" He would say, "No, I have to look at, I have to look at it. I, I can't commit, you know." But he would be very supportive of his students. He would say to us, "It's okay. I don't have to to sign off on it. Like you're a rabbi too, so you can also sign off on it, and that's okay." And you know, we always want the backing of greater rabbis than we. We always want that. And we're always looking for that, and rightfully so. I think it's important to get the wisdom and the and the you know the the intelligence of people who are who are you know out there and we should do that all the time. I'm a very big fan, don't get me wrong. But when my Rebbe passed away, I realized that it wasn't as shocking for me because he prepared me for it. In other words, what he had told me when he was alive was, you can Paskin. <laughs> you don't need me. Now, I always felt that I needed him. But he was giving me the other message. He was saying to me, you don't need me. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay without me. Even when I'm gone, it will be fine. You know, you can Paskin. You can decide. And I, I understand all the questions that I was asked here tonight. And they're all correct meaning the doubts, and how do you define, and how are you going to know for sure, and all this stuff. I get it. But if there's one thing that I learned from my Rebbe, was that we all need to step up and take responsibility. And we need to, we, you know, to put it uh, colloquially, you got to be a man. you got to just like, you know, you got to get up there and do what you need to do. We can always wring our hands and say, we don't know for sure, and this and this and that. And while we're doing that, people are suffering. So I'm not saying you should pass in from, you know, like from a hat, you know, just like pull something out of a sleeve. Of course, you should do so with erudition and knowledge, you know, and give answers that are correct. But we got to step up and take responsibility 
with the people that are around us and the people that are suffering. And we might make mistakes, sure, we might make mistakes sometimes. Sure. And we always know where the line is drawn. We won't always know. That is not going to stop us from doing the things that matter. So have a good night. Thank you so, oh, thank so you much. So for that much. Thank it's, you so much. It's the embodiment of a Torah rooted in reality and a Torah rooted in life. So thank you for being that embodiment. And we look forward to hosting you in the future. And we look forward to reading your book. I'm going to put uh, in the chat, um, as well as on the WhatsApp groups, your email address and your Facebook group where you deal with the questions that you receive for all of us to learn from. So thank you so much again on behalf of everybody here. You always have a home here to come and spread this important um, uh, Torah. And we, we look forward to having you again. Thank you, Rob, for all that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good night. Thank Good you. night, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Have a great day.